You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Since January, we have been working through a series in the book of Acts. And the whole genesis of this idea for walking through the book of Acts has been that this is our 10-year anniversary as a church. And it is very common for churches, as they get older, to become more ingrown, to become more focused on the institution, and to become more disconnected from mission, which is the very reason why we exist. And so in an effort to help us to avoid that typical life cycle of a church where we hit the peak and then we begin to head on a a long-term decline, we want to stay attuned to the work of mission because this is what creates a thriving, healthy, vibrant church. Focus on mission. And as I mentioned as we were bringing in these new members, sociologists of religion are having a field day right now because of all the data that is coming out about church attendance and church religious participation in America. And it's declining. It's declining all over. It's declining in nearly every denomination, every sector of American Christianity is facing declines. And people are trying to figure out why. And to be sure, it is multi-causal, which is to say there are a whole lot of reasons why this is the case. But certainly one of the most significant reasons is Christians not being Christians. The church not being the church. And so I think it's pretty important that we just seek to be the church. Church the way it was supposed to be, right? You notice in in, in conjunction with all this, there are are many different um, docu-series and documentaries that are coming out because people are fed up with shenanigans by institutions that call themselves churches. I'm fed up with it too. First and foremost in myself, and then next in everybody else. (laughs) So listen, this is an appeal for us to take seriously what it means to be a Christian, what this life is supposed to look like, how we're supposed to engage with the word, what it is that the word actually teaches us, and how the word prepares us to be a distinct countercultural, cross-cultural people in the midst of this world. We don't become more helpful to the world by becoming more like the world. They got enough of that. We become more helpful to the world when we become more truly like the church that holds out the same grace of the gospel that has redeemed our lives. That's my great interest in walking through the book of Acts. It's one of my favorites. It always lights my soul on fire. Because we are, theologically speaking, we are in the same redemptive historical epoch as the apostles. Which means that we should have big expectations for what God can do in us, through us, among us, and for us. And so today, I want to get into some particular dynamics that are in this text that I think are really important to mission. Because remember, one of the other points of this series has been to walk through the text and to draw out frameworks and patterns that exist in the text that can be useful for us today as we think about mission. So 
I'm going to approach our text for, for today through two points. In this text, we're going to see that the church has a gospel for all seasons and a gospel for all people. A gospel for all seasons and a gospel for all people. So let's just begin to work through the text. I want you to get in the text. Put your eyes in the text. Try to interface with what I'm saying and see it in the text. Our text opens up with this curious paragraph that has to do with, with Paul and his associates uh, picking up a teammate named Timothy. And Timothy is half Jewish, half Gentile. And Paul makes him get circumcised because they're going to be doing ministry among Jews and Gentiles. And he doesn't want his lack of circumcision to be a barrier to ministering to his Jewish people because they might just conclude that he had cast off the importance of their historic community and their historic faith. And right from jump, what you see in the text is how committed Paul was to becoming all things to all people. This really isn't about circumcision as much as it's about removing every barrier possible to love people across lines of difference. Just let that challenge you. One day, you may see Timothy. He'd be like, yeah, I really didn't want to make those adjustments in my life. I just wanted to be true to myself and thought that that could be okay. And Timothy's like, yeah, uh-huh. Let me tell you about what I went through for the mission, right? Pretty serious, right? So right from jump, we see Paul has plans. You see that? Paul picks up Timothy. He has plans to move forward in the mission. But then in the very next paragraph, what we begin to see is that the Lord is thwarting Paul and his team. He's thwarting their plans all along the way. Do you see it twice in the text? Pull out the text. Do you see what it says? It says in verse 6, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, does Paul seem like the kind of dude who would be happy to be quiet? No. Paul wanted to preach to every living creature, everybody he wanted to hear the gospel. But the Holy Spirit says, not, not here, not now, not, not, not in here. And he's like, they keep it moving. Verse 7, and when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now, think about it. Paul had ministry plans and ambitions. He had wonderful things that he wanted to do in Bithynia. He wanted the gospel to go out in Bithynia. He wanted to see people come to faith. He wanted to see a church raised up. He wanted to see it have elders and deacons and to have a vibrant ministry in Bithynia. But here's the thing. God edits Paul's plan so that he can get Paul on his plan. Now, why is this important? Here's why. Grace Mosaic, we got all kinds of plans for Northeast D.C., don't we? We want to see things happen. We want to see justice go out. We want to see people come to faith. We want to see kids in the schools get better education, and we want to play a part in that. We want to see housing for people who are, who are struggling to have housing stability. There's all these things that we want to see, but we have to be ready for the Lord to sovereignly edit our plan to get us onto his plan. 
Because sometimes we can be so stubbornly committed to our plans. Like, God, I know what will glorify you best. And he's like, word. I don't think you do. And I need to edit. Because here's the thing. Check this out. If Paul and his associates had gotten their way and they had gone to Bithynia, they may never have met the group of people who came to be Paul's strongest supporters in ministry. The church of Macedonia. That includes the Philippians and the Thessalonians. They were the ones who were giving for the relief of the Jewish saints in Jerusalem. They were the ones begging Paul for the opportunity to participate him, participate with him in the gospel ministry. Look at Philippians chapter 1. That's why he says, I thank my God in my every remembrance of you. If Paul had gotten his way, never would have meant that. Can you suspend your judgment on what's the best course when God bumps up against your plans? Or as Sister Kim put it, when the God who wipes away your sins wipes away your plan as well? Can you trust him? That's what's happening. He wants to go, but God edits. And we need to receive divine edits of our plans in faith but also in expectancy. You know, Jesus said, what father with his child asked for bread will give him a stone? If you ask God, if we ask God for wonderful things in the life of this church and in the ministry of this community, why would you expect that he's going to undershoot what you ask for? <laughs> no, he's so much better than that. And he loves this place more than you do. He does. And so the plan is edited, right? And Paul and his associates make a beeline once Paul has this vision. And it's a man of Macedonia. Macedonia is the region in which Philippi was a leading city. And the man from Macedonia saying, come help us. And they concluded that this was God directing them to the next opportunity that they had for preaching the gospel. And so they show up and they get to this place. It's it's. The text tells us a leading Roman city, right? It's a leading city. It's an urban center, and it's a Roman colony. This is an important place, and this is part of Paul's rhythm. This is what you see. Paul has his usual rhythm. He goes to an urban center that is like a junction point of travel, traveling roads, routes to different parts and different regions. He always goes to a synagogue first. To preach the faith to his people. But then after that, he begins to see the gospel go out regionally. And there's this rhythm where Paul sees the gospel go into a city and then flow out to the countryside. Which is just a simple reminder that the mission that we undertake in the city is important. It's valuable. Culture generally flows from urban centers out further into rural places. And how meaningful is it for us to be a gospel witness here in Washington, D.C.? This amazing city. There's so much that's amazing about this place. Amazingly good, amazingly broken. We get to serve here. It is a specific planting that the Lord makes of this church. It's important. And Paul and Silas are, are new to the city of Philippi and, and what they want to do. And Paul says this in the scriptures, in his letters. He says, I want to preach the gospel where Christ has not been named. I, I want to put in work with those who are, who are out there who have never heard of the Christian faith. That's primarily what he wants to do. 
But they also usually start with their Jewish brothers and sisters. Well, it just so happens in Philippi that there are not even enough Jewish men to have a synagogue. You had to have at least 10 Jewish men in order to establish a synagogue. There's no synagogue. So what would typically happen is that women would go down to the river, a near river, and they would pray by the river. And so when they see no synagogue in Philippi, Paul and Silas decide to go down to the river, and they're going to share the gospel with some people. Well, as they get down there, they start engaging, and this woman named Lydia, the text tells us that she's a, she's a Jewish businesswoman. She hears what Paul is preaching, and the text says that the Lord opened her heart to receive what Paul was saying. And look, immediately, as soon as she becomes a Christian, what does she do? She begs them for the opportunity to participate in the work. She says, why don't you make my house your home base for mission? So immediately, this woman experiences a transformation. And so Paul and Silas, they, Lydia prevails upon them. So they get into this rhythm where every day they instruct Lydia in the faith. And then they go down to the river to preach some more to those who remain down by the river, to those who were still unconvinced. So right there you see this principle in mission. What causes a fruitful mission? What is, where's fruitful mission? What are the contours of a fruitful mission? We continue to grow people up in the gospel. And we continue to put the gospel before people who do not believe. That's in this text. But then something curious begins to develop. There is this, the text tells us this young woman who is enslaved. She's oppressed. And she begins to follow them. And what the text tells us is that she had a spirit of divination. There is some kind of evil force that is at work in her life. And she keeps on following Paul and Silas and, and yelling out behind them, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she just keeps heckling them. It would be like this. Imagine you're the only Christian in your city. And you walk past the local uh, fortune teller. And then they come out behind you and they just start yelling. These people are preaching the Christian faith. These people are preaching the Christian. You'd be like, yo, I don't want you following me. Right? One, what's going on here? The word that's used to describe how Paul feels is not annoyed. It's grieved. He's grieved. His heart is heavy. Why? Here's why. First of all, he doesn't want the Christian faith to be associated with whatever it is she's peddling. She was, the text says she has had a spirit of Python, a Pythian god who was the god of soothsaying. Okay? But also, he's grieved because she is, she is the victim of gross injustice. You see in the text, it is no new thing that the powerful exploit the poor for, to enrich themselves. But you also see in the text that the, that the faithful preaching of the gospel does something about it. You see that in the text? It's in the text. So this young woman is following them and finally Paul has had enough and he turns around and he commands the evil spirit to come out of her and there she is in her right mind astonished she's been set free 
she wanders back to her owners. And they are enraged because now their moneymaker, now their hope of financial gain has been gone. Do you know that those who are guilty of injustice never let go without a fight? If you're going to fight for justice, it's going to bring trouble into your life. If you are going to defend the broken, it's going to bring trials into your life. But gospel people never recoil at the trials that come to them through defending those who are weak and abused and oppressed. This is what we see in the text. And these men rush upon Paul and Silas. They lay hands on them and they drag them before the magistrates. Now, I want you to see what's happening. They are trying to incite a race riot. These men are Jews. Another thing, anti-Semitism is not new either. You see, it's, it's, it's a historic, grievous sin. But they try to hype up these people by saying they're Jews and they're trying to get us to do things that are not lawful for Romans. Why? Because Romans believed Christians were atheists. That's what they called them because they didn't believe in the pantheon. Weird, right? They believed in one true God and for this they called Christians atheists. And what they meant by this is not lawful is they're trying to get us to stop identifying Caesar as Lord and to stop worshiping the gods of Rome. And so they incite this riot, this rebellion. And look at what happens. The authorities hear the charges. They give no trial. They have them sent to prison. They're beaten with rods. They're put in the stocks. And then they are put under the prison. This is like the prelude to a lynching. Now, something we need to consider. Think of all the different scenarios that could have developed after this. Think about it. Paul and Silas could have viewed one another as the enemy. Ooh, my name's Big Paul, and I just have to show off my spiritual gifts all the time. Man, you should have left that girl alone. What are you talking about, Silas? I thought you had my back, bruh. You don't let me get jumped by these dudes, man. Now we both are here. They could have treated each other as enemies. You know how often it, it is the case that when afflictions and trials come into our lives, we treat one another like the enemy? We treat our spouse like the enemy. We treat our kids like the enemy. We treat our roommates and our friends like the enemy. We treat our coworkers like the enemy. But that's not what they do. Paul and Silas could have viewed the enslaved girl as the enemy. They could have said to one another, that doggone girl, if she had just left us alone, we'd be down by the river preaching and probably seeing people come to faith right now. As I was just saying, when you get involved with people who have complicated issues in their lives, the effects of the fall and the effects of injustices done against them has put them in a very complicated spot. You are going to experience the overflow of their troubles. That's what happens. A lot of people have this romantic idea of caring for the poor, of loving the marginalized. And then when they start to get some of the shrapnel, with some of the, some of the backlash, they're like, whoa, whoa. I wanted the like, social media version where I say, no justice, no peace. On the internet. 
<laughs> right? Like, we all know that feeling, right? You, I, I, we all have experienced a feeling like, yo, this, is, this requires a lot more than I anticipated. But you know what? You don't see gospel people recoiling from the troubles. And you know why you don't? Because we are a people that knows that Jesus didn't recoil from the troubles that would accrue to him by serving us, by identifying with us. No, he got hit with the shrapnel of taking care of us. And he laid down a pattern for us so that we would be the kind of people that's resilient and doing the work of redemption on behalf of the beloved neighbor because that's what we have tasted. And where would we be if Jesus was a social media savior? If he talked it but didn't walk it, we'd be lost. But praise God, he worked it out word and deed. And now that same savior who did that for you says, do it for your neighbors in my name. Do not fear. Paul and Silas could have viewed their attackers as the enemies. They could have looked at each other and said, man, I'm hateful, racist, Romans, those pagans. Man, so ignorant and selfish. But Situations like these would lead Paul to say to another church, the battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against dark powers and forces in this world. Your neighbors are not the enemy. Your neighbors are not the enemy. And even if they were, Jesus laid down a paradigm of enemy love. So you can't get off the hook. Right. Paul and Silas could have viewed the government as the enemy. Because remember, these are Roman officials, provincial Roman officials. They could have said to one another, man, the policies of this government, I'll tell you, this place is going to hell in a handbasket. And from what I'm reading in the paper, next election is going to be even worse. Christians have always had a tricky relationship with politics. But I want to encourage us to think Romans 13, common good and your pilgrim identity. Yeah. Romans 13, we submit to those that God has sovereignly placed in authority. We also know that an unjust law is no law at all. We seek the common good, even when it puts us into conflict with the government for its injustices. But also we must remember that we are a pilgrim people. This, this world as it currently is is not our home. There's a renewal to come. And we must most certainly remember that our lives do not revolve around what's happening on Capitol Hill. Our lives revolve around what happened at Calvary's Hill. That is the center of our existence. And so whatever happens on the Hill, let us not be a hand-wringing, fearful, anxious, scared people. Even if it should come to the point that we really are persecuted as Christians in this country. Notice what I just said. If the day comes where we truly are persecuted for our Christian faith, I want you to think two things. First, it is a beautiful gift when the Lord in his sovereignty comes into a culture 
and frees it of I'm trying to put this in a gentle and kind way. When he frees it of cultural Christianity. That's a gift of the Lord. Because guess what? If the Lord allows the wheat to grow up with the chaff, he says, right? The real deal grows up with not the real deal. He will sort it out at the end, sheep and goats, wheat and tares. But it is not a sad thing. We should not be afraid or resistant to the idea of cultural Christianity dying out in this place. Maybe some people will actually catch the real thing. You know what I mean? But our call is not to be afraid and not to hide. Don't hide. Don't hide your light. You've been hearing from since you was a little kid. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Oh. Yes? Identify, be out as a Christian, and let them get a different angle on what it means to be a Christian by being faithful. But also, now we're going to get to that in a minute. We're going to get to that in a minute. Let's keep it going. Paul and Silas, what else could have happened? Here's the last thing I'm going to say, and this is something I think we are all very prone to fall into. Paul and Silas could have treated one another as the enemy. They could have treated the enslaved girls the enemy. They could have treated their attackers as the enemy. They could have treated the government as the enemy. They could have treated God as the enemy. They could have said to one another, man, we're out here trying to do kingdom stuff. We're out here preaching the gospel. And God, how, how are you going to let this happen to us? We're out here trying to be true to you. We're trying to glorify you. And you let us get thrown in prison. God, like, I love you. I believe in you. How you let this suffering come into my life? God, I'm, I'm here to serve you. I, I'm, I'm, I'm about that life. How you going to let me experience this loss? God is not the enemy in this text. They don't treat God like the enemy. They trust in what God is doing. And they are so secure in God's promises that they are able to experience suffering, pain, and difficulty in a very different way because they had a gospel for all seasons. How many car guys out there? You know, like sometimes you get all weather tires. That means when you go to the tire shop, you ought to be able to drive in rain, snow, sleet, and hail no matter what desert roads, these wheels are meant to help you navigate anywhere. The gospel is for all seasons. It's good news when you're on the mountaintop. It's good news when you're in the valley. It's good news when you're balling, and it's good news when you're broke. It's good news when people love you, and it's good news when people hate you. It's good news when circumstances are coming together. It's good news when circumstances are falling apart. Why? Because none of these circumstances can change or take away what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. None of these circumstances can take away your spiritual status, your, your great inheritance, or your destiny in union with Christ. He was raised from the dead, and you are raised with him. Your circumstances, listen to me, may tell you 
that God has forgotten you. But there's another voice that assures you of God's fatherly care. Your circumstances may tell you that you should give up and wallow in self-pity. But there's another voice that tells you that God is with you and for you. Circumstances may tell you that it's not worth spending the effort. But there's another voice that tells you to keep on pressing in the work. Because Jesus has overcome the world. So here's the main question. Are you a fair weather follower or do you have a gospel for all seasons? Listen, we need to be careful that we don't follow the Lord because we find him useful. If you only follow God because you find him useful, you're not really following the Lord for his glorious person and his greatness. That's just another version of the prosperity gospel. I follow God to get things from him. And if he doesn't give me the things I want, the nice life, the perfect health, and the obedient kids, and, and, and the house I wanted, it's not working. Listen, take that out of your vocabulary. We don't follow the Christian faith because it works. It works because it's true. That's a crucial difference. We're not out here playing games trying to mythologize the Bible. Oh, the resurrection is just a, an encouraging myth. No! Encouraging myths do not cause people to give their lives for the sake of Christ. Encouraging myths are not enough to sustain people through losses and brutality and violence and oppression. No, it wasn't a convenient myth that kept the black church through chattel slavery. It's not convenient myths that keep the believers in China in the underground church resilient in the face of persecution, real persecution. It is not a, it's not just a, a nice, hopeful myth that keeps believers in the Middle East being faithful to the Lord when they are surrounded by opposition. Jesus either rose from the dead for real, for real, or just don't waste your time coming to church. We believe that he got up from the grave. As surely as you got up out of bed this morning, he got up out the grave. That's what we're about. So I bring this up to say there is no cause to be a fair weather follower. This is a all chips in the center of the table kind of thing. And it's good if, you are, if you're still testing it, shaking the cage. You're counting the cost. Jesus encouraged you to do that. That's good. This is for those who identify as a Christian, but eh, don't really have a theology of suffering or resilience in the face of difficulty. Listen, the mission requires that we be resilient in the face of difficulty. Let's continue through the story and see how it unfolds, okay? Verse 25 begins with one of the most powerful images in the story. The text says, about midnight. Now, after, after they go through this, basically they're accused they don't even have a trial. They are immediately stripped, beaten with rods. Yo, that is for real. It's like caning, okay? Beaten with rods, their backs are tore up, probably the back of their legs too. Thrown in the bottom of the prison, put in the stocks. I want you to imagine this. Imagine Paul and Silas. They can 
feel the cold prison floor beneath them. And they're, they're, they're tangled up and they're stretched through the stocks and it's, it's pitch black. And, and then Silas sort of leans over to Paul and says, you know, Paul, this prison ain't so bad. Because I remember when I was in a, 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 a far different kind of prison. When I was a captive to my own sin and my own selfishness and pride. When, when I felt the bruises of my own foolishness and waywardness. When the stocks of sin had me held up and bound up so that I couldn't walk in the path of righteousness nor work for the Lord's kingdom. That was prison, Paul. And then this gospel reflection begins to warm Paul's heart. And, and, and Paul leans over to Silas and he says, you know, now that you mention it, Silas, it's really not that dark in here either. Because I remember being in a, a far more desperate darkness when my foolish heart was darkened, when, when my thinking was futile and I was estranged from God. But I remember on that, on that road when the light broke into my darkness, Silas, he changed me. He took that spirit of murder out of me more quickly than I cast the spirit out of that young girl. Well, I might have to praise him a little bit, Silas. You see, as they sat in that prison cell, they connected with one another and they remembered the gospel metrics, the gospel framework. They remembered that they were in far worse situations and they had tasted the redemption of the Lord and they were raised up to new life. And as they fellowshiped with one another, real fellowship is not just getting together to hang out. Real fellowship is chopping it up over the Lord and who he is and what he's done and how we can be trusted and encouraging one another, challenging and deepening one another, reminding one another. This is what they were doing with one another. They're encouraging each other back and forth. They were in touch with a deeper reality. Church father Tertullian put it like this. He said, the legs feel nothing in the stocks when the heart is in heaven. <laughs> they were in touch with the deeper reality of the world. And this text is telling us that we have a gospel for all seasons. We have good news that can carry us through anything. And we have to learn how to nurse on the promises of God, just like a newborn baby nurses at its mother's breast. Nursing on the promises of God, not nursing your resentments, not nursing your self-pity, nursing on the promises of God. When you suffer, when you go through challenges, what you're really about becomes crystal clear. You know that? What we do on Sundays is not perfunctory. We're not trying to get you to lift your hands because it makes us feel better up here. That's not why we're doing it. We're not trying to get you emotionally and intellectually engaged in worship just because it, it makes us look good. No, we're doing it for you. You need it. Just like giving, God doesn't need your money. He doesn't need you to let go. You need you to let go. God doesn't need your worship. You need to worship. Because there are going to come times in your life that will wreck you if you do not have a heart that is tuned to sing his praises. And guess what else? Your witness will be blunted and diminished if you don't know how to bear witness in times of suffering. It's in suffering that you get the truest picture of yourself, who you really are, 
You know, people say, oh, that wasn't really me. No, it was. You just didn't want that part of you to get out. Right? We all know what that feels like. I do, too. You get the truest picture of yourself in suffering. And you get the truest picture of the Lord in suffering. He's the God that's in the furnace with you. <laughs> He's the God who will never leave you or forsake you. He's present. Do you see this? The extension of God's kingdom begins with the way in which the kingdom is extended deeply into the hearts of people. When the kingdom has swept your soul, when the kingdom has swept our souls, then the kingdom will begin to extend in our place. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They gave God praise and they prayed. They prayed, but the church prayed. Come on, somebody. They were praying. What were they praying for? We don't know. <laughs> but if the events that followed were the result of their prayers, then they weren't praying primarily for the alleviation of their trials. They were praying for continued opportunity to be useful for the mission of God. They had a kingdom focus. One of my favorite quotes about prayer that has been most helpful, practical, and encouraging to me is a quote by Sir Thomas Brown. This is what he says about prayer. I want to have such a spirit of prayer that I pray in all places, in any house, highway, or street. I don't want there to be one street in this city that can't say, this man depends on his God and expects much from him. Not one block in this city. I want to make every sighting of a church an occasion for kingdom prayer. When I enter any house, I want to pray, may the peace and mercy of God be upon this house. After a sermon, I want to pray for blessing on every hearer and for the minister. It will never be altogether well with us till we convert the universe into a prayer room and continue in the spirit as we go from place to place. Paul and Silas converted a prison cell into a prayer room. They converted Philippi into a prayer room. And what might happen if we turned D.C. into a prayer room? This was the source of their power and resilience in their suffering. Their all-weather gospel and their rooted life of prayer and worship. So after Paul and Silas spent some time remembering their redemption, they begin to have a little praise and worship session. You know, they're, they're so filled with the peace and the joy that the Lord has given them. You know, the, Paul and Silas are in there, and, and, and Paul looks at Silas, and he says, you know what, Silas? The Lord's, fa the Lord's faithful. We're going to be all right, man. He's faithful. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. And then Silas goes, <clears throat> There is no shadow of turning with thee. And the prisoners were listening. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. They're praising. They're praising. And they're just rolling through the songs, right? Silas says, ooh, this, this, let's do this, let's do this. 
Through the love of God our Savior, all will be well. You know, no, you know, as I like, they, they, they continue to have their praise and worship session in the prison. And then I imagine that as they continue through their time of worship, they finally, they finally get to uh, 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 their, their, their final song, and then all of a sudden, the walls start shaking, the prison starts shaking, and the prisoners were listening. They were faithful in the time of suffering. They gave God praise. They lifted their prayers. They expected much of God. God shows up while the people are listening, and he does his work to reveal himself to the prisoners who were listening. Let me ask you a question. Where exactly do you think the Philippian church came from? <laughs> Prison ministry, baby. Prison ministry. My goodness. This is, this is, this is powerful. Because in our modern world, our modern world, secularism forms us to conceal suffering, to ignore suffering, to minimize suffering, and to evade suffering. The one thing it does not form us to do is face suffering and endure it. The empty promises of secularism do not sustain us in these times. Our modern world sets the expectation in our minds for no suffering, which is why we're so bewildered when suffering inevitably comes upon us. We think, why me? Why not? We have to make sure that we are constantly turning away from a prosperity gospel in which we think that God owes us a nice life, lots of comforts, lots of money, and like he's a genie in a bottle. He ain't no Christine Aguilar. Okay? He's the Lord. I'm sorry, I need Jesus. <laughs> so listen, when you don't have any resources for suffering, the modern world tells you that you're not supposed to suffer. And if you ever find yourself in a situation of, suffer, of suffering, it's your responsibility to get out of it. And they believe that you can get out of it because they identify all suffering as material in nature. So then the way you resolve it is by techniques of modernity or by the professions of modernity. You know, I'm just gonna, here's a little personal testimony. Our kids' health stuff that's popped off over the last four or five years. Early on, I had a very difficult time reconciling myself to the fact that this was our situation. And ask Vanessa I, how many times I said, why can't these doctors fix it? Like, I expect it. I'm entitled to a medical fix. This, is not, this suffering ain't supposed to be. Then I started to get hip to the fact that, mm, okay. <laughs> yeah, that's my modern entitlement and refusal to suffer. As if I'm better than the majority of the world that lives in suffering all the time. And the vast history of the world. We are utterly unique in the fact that we've never been better set up to deal with things from a technical perspective with modern medicine and tools and all that kind of stuff. And we have never been 
worse off in the context of our suffering. Because you know what? Ancient people, they expected that suffering was a normal part of life. And they rejoiced in the times where good things happened. Modern people respect that everything is going to be a bowl of cherries. And they're offended even when suffering comes. That framework comes to us from the culture. But here's, here's the thing. When, when you think like this, and it's your job to resolve the suffering, you, you spend all your effort trying to figure it out, trying to spend your way out, trying to evade it, and resenting it. But what it does is it keeps you deeply self-absorbed and distanced from the world. And underneath our evasion of suffering is running from death. And one of the reasons why Paul and Silas could be present in that prison is because they didn't feel the need to run from death. And in an important sense, they had already died and their lives were hidden with Christ and God. They knew that death only had the power to bring them closest to their deepest love. And Paul would even say to the Philippians later, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We have to understand that Christians, like their Savior, don't move from strength to strength. We move from death to resurrection. And the prisoners were listening to them. Listen, this is an important framework. Paul and Silas didn't need to be in control of the form of their witness. They focused on the fact of their witness. Now, many of us, it's like this. It was in the theater. When I was in the theater, the stars of the show got to make all their requests about what they demanded be in the green room, okay? So as an example, this is what, if, if you want Beyonce to come sing at your thing, this is what she requires. One large table for catering dressed with white tablecloths. Dressing room should be 78 degrees. Four brand new white towels in the bathroom. Two face, two body. Hot food, juicy baked chicken legs. <laughs> Wings, breasts only. Please season with fresh garlic, seasoned salt, black pepper, and cayenne pepper. Heavily seasoned, steamed broccoli. Lightly seasoned green beans, lightly seasoned steamed spinach. Beyonce can only have Pepsi products. One case of Aquafina water. The list continues to go down. Now, when I was in show business and had the chance to work with stars, you know what I felt? Just grateful that I got cast in the show. You give me river water, I don't care. I'm just glad to be in the show. Right, you know, like many Christians are like, God, I need Aquafina, I need room temperature, I need this, I need this, and then I'll be a witness. But what God is looking for is somebody who's just grateful that they got cast in his story. Someone who's grateful that he brought them up from the dead. Someone who's just grateful to be loved and known by God who says, tell me whatever you want, whatever form. Whether that form is suffering, whether that form is in, in abundance, whether that form is with four kids, or whether that form is with no kids and I want them. We don't get to choose the form of our witness. We only can choose the fact of our witness. Will you do it? Will you bear witness regardless of the circumstances that have been given to you? That is what makes their witness so powerful in this text. These prisoners, you have to see this. These prisoners learned more about the trustworthiness of God through these believers who suffered in faith than they could have learned from a stack of theology books. They learned what the faith was really all about. 
They saw that this was a gospel for all seasons and that it was a gospel for all people, closing it down. Do you see? Once again, we are seeing the cross-cultural, countercultural community of God in this text. You have a successful Jewish woman who is a business owner. You have a formerly oppressed, enslaved pagan girl. You have a blue-collar Philippian jailer. And then whoever else who was in that jail who had been able to experience freedom on the other side of that imprisonment, who come together into the church in Philippi. It's no surprise that they had such a remarkable impact on the world. They were a world-changing church, and that is not hyperbole. Their participation in, in Paul's mission changed the world. Beautiful stuff here. And I, I just, I want to... I want to say this. The gospel compelled this upper class professional Jewish woman to use her money, power, and cultural status for the sake of the mission. And the gospel compelled this oppressed, formerly enslaved pagan girl to leave the darkness and to live in the freedom of Christ. And the gospel compelled this blue collar Roman jailer to reject self harm, to collapse in reverence, to humbly ask the way of salvation, and then to live as a changed man. Do you see the gospel addresses each one of these people specifically and then deploys and empowers each of them to participate in the work? And at the end of the text, you know what the people said about them? That their faith was disturbing the city. <laughs> I want to ask you, do you have a faith that disturbs D.C.? Can we pray that we would have a faith that disturbs Northeast D.C. Because if you haven't noticed, this city needs to be disturbed in the best and most beautiful kinds of ways. Disturbed with a new vision for justice. Disturbed with a new vision for mutual love and neighbor care. Disturbed with new visions for the hope that exists in Jesus Christ. The city needs to be awakened, and by God's grace, it will be. If God's people will just remember and live into the reality that we have a gospel for all seasons and a gospel for all people. Amen. Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.